You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little show and you'd like to support the show, you could do so by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining me again. Before we get started, let me just remind you right off the top here about our Patreon page again. If you folks think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you'd like to see the podcast keep on going and remain as ad free as possible. I know there are some ads on there every once in a while, depending on where you're listening. Uh, please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And I got to tell you guys, that chat is one of my favorite things that I get to do Oak Island-wise. Uh, it is so much fun. Come and join us. Again, folks, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up, support the podcast. It's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. Also, if you do not want to do that monthly thing, and I get that, I get that, no problem. Uh, you can make a one-time donation. People ask me about this. You can do that via Venmo. The only place I have for you to do that is through my music account, at Dave McBride Music. I'm a musician by trade. That's where people give you tips or whatever they want to do. Um, so it's at Dave McBride Music on Venmo. And uh, you're certainly welcome to do that if you would like to support us somehow without being a part of a monthly thing there. As always, let's start today's podcast with emails and messages from you, the listeners. And just like last week, we only have a couple of emails this week, but they're both pretty long and really interesting. But before we get into those, I just want to answer a couple of questions that came from social media. So first, let's go to Facebook and hear from Richard. He asked, I have been a fan since year one, episode one. I've wondered for years why when pieces of earthenware are found, why only a few small pieces are found. Seems to me if you break a bowl or other vessel, when you toss it away, you'll toss all of it into the same hole. Richard, listen, I'm not an expert, right? But I think the answer lies mostly within the category of natural occurrences, meaning the earth just moves under our feet, right? Isn't that a song? Uh, the ground just kind of moves around. All sorts of factors cause such movements, uh, most often rain, I would imagine, but also things like storms and wind and stuff like that. But also the very specific nature of archaeology can also be a factor in this as well, if you think about it, right? I mean, if you break a bowl, the pieces scatter. Rain and wind picks up those pieces and they move them. Now, they might not move them miles away, but a few feet could be all that you know you need. You know, um, the wind moves it, rain, animals, tree roots, anything like that. But if one piece is only even six to 18 inches away from the other, then the archaeologist 300 years later might not be digging in that direction or in that exact, both of those exact places, right? So they wouldn't find the entire thing. Also, I think at least from what I understand, they do find a lot more of these pottery pieces on Oak Island, but the only ones we get to see on the show are the ones that are initially discovered and then discussed by everybody, right? I hope that helps. It's a great question. I might send it off to a friend of mine to see if I can get a better answer for you. Now let's go to that Patreon page and listen and uh, hear from our patron Thomas, who asked during the live chat this week, do you think the archaeologist team is restricted from publishing in scientific journals? I looked and did not find anything recently from Laird. 
Uh, that's a great question, Thomas. Um, and one I really, again, just like the last one, I have no real answer for other than to say that if I were guessing, I would say these two possibilities here, right? These two that I'm about to give you. First is that, yes, perhaps there is a non-disclosure agreement, right? Something that keeps them from publishing the findings. But you got to keep in mind that that would only pertain to things that have not yet been aired. Does it make sense? That's the only non-disclosure agreement that I've ever been that I've ever heard of, certainly from Laird, that they can't really talk about things until it airs, and then they're happy to talk about whatever whatever you want, right? Uh, the other very real possibility, and I think this is kind of the answer, is that the work done has not yet yielded enough information worthy to publish, you know, what we would call findings in such a journal. I mean. It is still very much ongoing work. So perhaps they're just not ready to publish any conclusions yet, right? I mean, they're, they're, still, they're still doing this stuff. Again, I'm just kind of spitballing here to say the least. I know some projects have finished and, and um, you know, some have been put on hold. I think there's a lot of factors here. I don't think the NDA is the only factor. I think there are other ones. Thank you very much, my friend. Great question. All right. Now to those emails. Let's start here with Jim, who writes, Hey, Dave, glad to have you and the podcast back. Watching the latest few episodes, something has been tumbling around in the back of my elderly and addled brain. It concerns this newly discovered tunnel that seems to run from the baby blob to under the garden shaft and is now being found on the other side of the garden shaft and atop the women's memorial. Uh, it looks to me that it is headed towards 10X. Do you see it that way or am I delusional? If it is heading towards 10X, it brings to mind that many seasons ago, they had a diver go down and probe around the chamber at the bottom. If I recall correctly, the diver found an opening uh, that extended off the chamber, the direction of which I do not recall them saying. Could this newly discovered tunnel possibly go toward the, and connect with 10X? That would be something worth exploring, if true. Not to mention the tie-in would have to mean something. I would think Steve, with his magic specter, could shoot the elevations and direction to see if the tunnel does indeed head toward 10X. Inquiring minds want to know. Thank you for your efforts to keep the boat afloat. Jim in Iowa. Jim, in general, yes, it does move towards 10X. The tunnel is heading east to west, which would bring it in that general direction. However, if I'm reading my maps correctly, and I think I am, the straight line that this appears to be on would not intersect with 10X. It would be really pretty well far south of 10X, which is, the you know, 10X is to the east of the money pit. But if you were standing at the garden shaft looking towards 10X, um, you would be looking more north than east to get there. Make sense? Also, Jim, the 10X shaft and the supposed cavity at the bottom of it is over 200 feet deep. If memory serves, more than double the depth that we're seeing here for this possible tunnel feature at the garden shaft now. I'm not saying a connection is impossible, but right now the evidence just is not pointing anywhere in that direction. Great question, Jim. Thank you for writing and keep those questions coming. Uh, and now let's hear from Joe who says, Hi, Dave. Big fan of your Oak Island podcast. I look forward every week to hearing your objective review of the show. We share many similar thoughts and questions. In the past, and most recently, Season 11, Episode 1, at the 4226 mark, you stated how sea levels were, quote, much, much lower back then. I was envisioning feet. 
I'm no expert in the field, but I was curious enough to check how much lower. I googled historic sea levels and found several links, but this one in particular seemed reputable and had a graph showing the last few hundred years, not thousands of years. And he leaves me the uh, sealevels.org if you want to look at that. He continues, depending on what you want, when you want to start the clock, it indicates that present sea levels are approximately only 7 inches to 10 inches from 1580 to 1860, higher than they were back then, which, in my opinion, isn't a significant amount, especially when you consider daily fluctuations caused by the tides. You may already have this info, but I thought I would pass it along just in case. No need to read this email during the podcast, but I did ask you, Joe, and you said you would. Uh, maybe some clarification on a future episode. Thanks again for a terrific podcast, Joe. Joe, that is a great question. Um, and uh, I'm not a geologist, but the thing is, I know someone who is. So I sent your question over to Gordon Fader. He is the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved, the final chapter, and is himself a geologist that has looked into this very question of rising sea levels and the effects it could have on the Oak Island Mystery. Now, Gordon and I have talked many times about this, and we've spoken specifically on this subject, so I kind of knew what the answer was anyway, but I wanted to send it, his email directly to him so that you can get his response, and here is how he responded. Hi, Dave. Here is the factual story on sea level history in the Oak Island region. This is based on the research of many geologists in Atlantic Canada over decades and has been published many times in scientific journals. We should call it relative sea level change. Since the glaciers left the region over 10,000 years ago, the land has been adjusting from the weight of the ice. Presently, the land, including Oak Islands, is going down, not up. The sea level is rising, and together they result in a relative rise in sea level of about one meter, or three feet, every 300 years. The lowest stand of sea level was 70 meters in that region, and it occurred longer than 10,000 years ago. At that time, Oak Island was connected to the land, and the bay was just a lake along the path of rivers. Oak Island only became an island four to 500 years ago. You could take this determination to the bank, and it must be included in all Oak Island historic re reconstructions. Cheers, Gordon. And Joe. In order to do my due diligence here for you, I then followed up by asking Gordon, I think, the question you would ask, which is, why is there so much of a difference between the information that you are presenting here in this website uh, and what he just told us? And this is how he answered. Sea level curves must be developed for each region, and one does not apply to them universally. He is likely referring to one curve that just measures sea level rise and does not consider land movements. If the land is sinking, as it is here, and you add a sea level rise component, then the relative rise is great. That is how we get the one foot per hundred years for Oak Island. Joe, I hope that answers the question for you. The graph you're looking at is, as far as I can interpret and from talking to him, is only showing you one of the many factors that affect what the island has looked like over the centuries. Let me also say this, Joe. Gordon is by no means the only geologist who has said this very same thing to me. I've talked about this with a number of scientists. They all kind of agree on this, um, that Oak Island only became an island something about four, four to 500 years ago, and that there was a connection from Oak Island to the mainland for all of that time. And if you do the math and you back up, then we're talking about you know only becoming an island 
right? In, in, in what, you know, <laughs> the 1500s, the 1600s. Um, so specifically, I looked into this very question, mostly, uh, how it is possible that a small island like this, um, you know, let me say it like this. I specifically looked into this when I first started examining the Zena Halpern theory, when I first got her book and first started reading about this, however many years ago. And my first thought when I saw that map that she has is how is it possible that a small island like this could have the exact same shoreline 800 years ago? Because I, I'm a person who frequents, I, I my family is from Maine, I go to Maine a lot. And even if you look at pictures of uh, photographs of the shorelines and things like that from the 1930s, the 1920s, you know, those early photographs, it's not exactly the same. So how could it be the same here, right? I soon discovered through multiple sources that it simply couldn't and that this map could actually not, couldn't actually be a real map of Oak Island created by the Templars however many hundreds of years ago because the island just wouldn't have looked like that. I hope that answers your question. My huge thanks to Gordon Fader for taking the time and helping us out here with Joe's question. Don't forget, folks, his book, Oak Island Mystery Solved, The Final Chapter. If you are looking for an incredibly well-researched and well-written theory, and one that also happens to involve, involve not an elaborate treasure, but does involve lost history, clandestine government actions, and things like that, try this book out. You won't be disappointed. Okay, folks, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. It is time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 3 of The Curse of Oak Island called Sheer Mystery. Remember when I said last week uh, that I thought the pun writer was gone, had gone missing? Well, he or she is apparently back, and... Uh, and in full force, you'll see what I mean in just a second. We start with our review of the episode over at Lot 5. And the first scene we see is Gary Drayton and Peter Frenetti metal detecting along the beach there. This is, the, for those of you who don't know, this is the northern side of the island. And Lot 5 and the western side of the island, Lot 5 is. If you weren't aware, it is opposite of the money pit, pretty much, right? So first, Gary pulls out what he calls an old cribbing spike. They found literally dozens of these spikes uh, or things like this all over the island, especially on the beach. Next, Gary and Peter find what appears to be the handle off an old pair of scissors. And there is your title pun for you folks. Sheer mystery. Get it? Get it? The show immediately makes a comparison with uh, the find um, of this find to another artifact found on Oak Island decades ago by Dan Blankenship, which he determined was a pair of scissors of Spanish origin from the 17th century. There is an interesting moment here after the discovery of this artifact, and they're talking about its comparison to Dan Blankenship's artifact, when Rick Lagina talks about how excited Dan must have been to find that pair of Spanish shears, you know. You see, Dan Blankenship was convinced that the Oak Island treasure was Spanish in origin, that, he, that it came from a Spanish treasure ship of some kind, sailing during the Age of Discovery. Now, I'm not accusing Dan of anything untoward here, but I would love to see this artifact re-examined by Emma Culligan, using the much more accurate methods than Dan had at his disposal to determine this exact age and origin, you know, 40 years ago or whenever he found it. 
Sometimes people with preconceived theories and notions tend to find things that support their theory. You know what I mean? Uh, perhaps he was, um, you know, perhaps he was given other possibilities of what the origin of this could be, but he chose to focus on the one possibility that backed his ideas up. That's what treasure hunters do, folks. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, let's move on. Later on in the episode, Carmen Legg returns with this fabulous hat that he's been wearing. Obviously, the same scene. Uh, but <laughs> to have a look at the item that Gary and Peter found on the beach, this handle off of scissors. Carmen for, and confirms that that is indeed what this is. And that from the way it looks, it may even be even older than the one Dan Blankenship found. Now, I did not pick up on an origin here that Carmen might have said. Maybe I just missed it. But either way, this is a pretty cool item. Not sure if it is all that unusual. Uh, certainly, its location on the beach suggests it might have washed ashore, you know. Uh, also, I'm not sure what it has to do with the treasure yet, but if there is another chemical match here with the William Phipps artifacts, which we talked about last week, then it becomes much more interesting for me to discuss for sure. So let's see if that actually happens. Now, Claude on the Patreon commented during this scene, quote, I'm not saying Carmen doesn't know his um, stuff. He, he didn't say stuff. I'm, I'm fixing that for you. But why wouldn't you confirm those dates? It's a good question, Claude. Um, it's a very good question, actually. Maybe they did do that work. And for whatever reason, we just didn't get to see it here. Yeah, it's a nice spot, my friend. Good, good, good job finding that. Uh, all right, let's back it up a bit. Earlier in the episode, we see Jack Begley coming to Lot 5 to help Helen Sheldon and the archaeology team at this weird tree thing, which we can't call a weird tree thing anymore because somebody went and chopped down the tree. <laughs> Scott on the Patreon pointed out that according to his father, who works in forestry, certainly an expert that I am not, um, that the tree was not more than 50 years old. So I guess chopping it down isn't such a bad idea, right? It's not going to ruin anything here, especially if you are trying to get to what's underneath it. <laughs> it certainly helps to get it out of the way. On a side note, the narration is now calling this thing that we're seeing here the quote-unquote rectangular feature, or later in the episode, the quote rectangular stone foundation. Either one is certainly much better than my name, Weird Tree Thing, uh, at the beginning of the scene here that we see, uh, Jack does this weird thing where he tries to relate this feature to the money pit. I'm not sure what that was all about, but you gotta love Jack's enthusiasm uh, for the hunt. Later, Jamie Kuba, one of the archaeologists here, the new one this year, finds a bit of old pottery, prompting Elizabeth on the Patreon to ask more pottery, how much pottery can they find? And the reason why I'm stopping to ask that, answer that question, Elizabeth, is because believe me when I tell you, you're only seeing a fraction of all the pottery they find, as we mentioned earlier. Just a fraction, right? Later, we see Alex Lagina at this rectangular stone foundation. Boy, that's a mouthful of a name, but anyway, let's stick with it. And the archaeologists show him more uh, pottery that they found that predates the finding of the money pit. That's the key here. It predates the finding of the money pit and also predates the division of Oak Island into lots in 1762. Now, this is probably <laughs> the most predictable thing I'm going to say in this podcast today. In fact, I'm sure many of you who have been listening to me for a very long time are rolling your eyes just waiting for what I'm going to say here, but I can't resist because the narration then tells us about how Oak Island was the only island in the area divided like this. And the survey work was done by a guy named Char General Charles Morris, who was, wait for it a high-ranking Freemason. 
whatever the heck that means. I don't know what ranking has to do with anything. Could Morris have divided this island into lots because he knew something about the treasure? Folks, this is totally made up. Listen, a few years after dividing the island, the government also gave some of those lots away as land grants to former soldiers. Now, does this seem like some clandestine thing done for some incomprehensible reason dealing with a treasure to you? I mean, it just doesn't to me. And I would love them sometimes when they say things like this to at least try and connect the dots for us a little bit, right? I mean, if you're going to posit a theory, if you're going to tell us that, if you're going to make some sort of up some sort of theory about this guy and this dividing into plots, take the theory to the end. What did General Morris know? And how would dividing the lands into plots help him with whatever his agenda was? You might be a little more convincing there if you give me something, but that's, you know, anyway. It's enough venting for now. Elizabeth on the Patreon asked, quote, is it possible for there to be undocumented structures on Lot 5? Elizabeth, the short answer is yes. And since we're making things up, I'll spin a little tale of my own. Imagine a farmer very early on in this very sparsely populated area making a shed for himself for when he's not there to put his tools or to leave things, you know, ox shoes or whatever it might be, a place to store his ox shoes. Storms come, they knock it down, he sells the property off, knocks it down again, scatters everything inside of it all over the island. Nobody ever goes to this spot because there's no house there. So the stuff just sort of gets left there and things get covered up over the years. Why would he document that, right? Why would he document that he built this little shed? He wouldn't. I mean, I used to have a very undocumented treehouse in my yard years ago, and I can assure you that had nothing to do with treasure. For the second straight episode, the bulk of the work seen here this week was done over at the Money Pit. And again, the episode starts off there, like seemingly every episode does these past few years, right? With a sort of recap scene along with a few from the cast watching a new borehole being dug and nothing really happening in that first scene, just sort of talking about it, right? This time it's a borehole called D.5N-27. I think I got that right. Um... This is located just west of the boreholes they were digging last week, just west of the garden shaft. And the first sample we see come up, Terry Matheson tells us, is softer wood, indicating that they're getting closer to a structure of some kind. But the digging still has some ways to go before they can reach their target depth. So while that's being done, we then head over to the war room for another video conference with the guys from the Dumas Mining Company who are working uh, or doing work on the garden shaft last year. They did all that work. And uh, last week they told us that the Laginas uh, and they were still trying to get um, permitting done, the proper permitting from the government. Well, I guess Dumas is doing the, per the permitting by themselves. I don't think the Laginas are involved in that. But this time it appears, even though we thought there might be a big delay, there isn't. Um, it's The permits have been approved and work will soon commence. It's good news for us, bad news for the exploratory borehole drilling project we, which we just discussed. More on that in a bit. So we head back to the drilling, right? And this is D.5N-27. And at, they're now at, I think what they said was 95 feet, and they find some pieces of wood. At a much shallower depth they're finding here than they were expecting to find, you know, wood of any kind here. Alex Lagina kind of opines that perhaps they're seeing the top of an offset chamber. I mean, whatever 
it's just a just an idea, you know, just a piece of wood can't tell you that, but you you, you got to have hope. Not sure how that would be the case that an offset chamber would be 10 feet higher, but I think we might get some ideas on this a little bit later on in the episode. So then they go down a little further, they find even more wood down past 101 feet, I think it was. But as they do, Craig Tester comes in and he brings in the bad news that I just mentioned uh, and tells them that they're running out of time with this project because once the garden shaft project begins, they have to stop drilling over here. They have to remove this stuff and all these big, you know, all this big stuff here to make way for Dumas. But not, apparently, before they can get done one last hole. This one labeled C5N-27. Now, I was a bit confused by this hole. I was a bit confused by the location because the show either did a terrible job at explaining exactly where this is um, or they, for some reason, didn't want to tell us, didn't want to give us a good explanation of where this is. Let me explain. First, we hear Terry Matheson say this is a new hole and it's, quote, on the same line just five feet further south, unquote, as the other recent holes. But then the narration comes on right after that and says that it is instead located further east. So which is it? It's weird. And usually, to make it even weirder, they usually show a map of the area and where these holes are. And in that map, they highlight the one that they're working on at the time. But the map that they show here at this scene, for some reason, doesn't ever actually show C5N-27 on it. I'm not sure what that's all about, but it was a bit strange to me, to say the least. I just didn't get what was going on there. At a depth of 93 feet, they find what Terry calls, quote unquote, nothing but Mother Nature. But at around 98 to 104 feet, they all get excited because the drill apparently dropped a few feet. Make sense? Um, And this is indicating to them a possible tunnel. So at 108 feet or so, they find wood, hand cut wood. The guys start talking about a possible tunnel again and whether what they're looking at here could be the roof of the tunnel or the floor of the tunnel. And Alex comes in, makes a great point here, saying that the roof of an underground tunnel would certainly be more substantial than a floor would. And that had me thinking, why would you even build a floor? Why would you put wood on the floor of an underground tunnel? That just seems strange. Anyway, the next bit of wood they pull out seems to indicate to them the possibility that whatever tunnel they're finding here might have collapsed at some point. Or at least that is one of the possibilities of why they're seeing sort of a jumbled mess. This is something I've been worried about with this tunnel for some time now. Remember, no one knows exactly where the money pit is located, and therefore, no one knows exactly where the collapse of the money pit took place either. When I hear the word collapse, I start to worry that what this tunnel might actually be is nothing more than an undocumented searcher tunnel that fell victim to the collapse of the money pit like so many others before it. Let's hope that's not what we're seeing here and that we're just going to end up following this to nothing. You know, the only good thing about that is if we can actually pinpoint and find the beginning and the end of the collapse of the money pit and that it is in this place, right, west of the garden shaft, then we know that everyone for the last however many centuries, you know, century and a half, have been looking in very much the wrong place. So maybe we got something here. Hard to hard to know for sure, but that's the hopeful and the <laughs> that's the worry and the hopeful side of what we're seeing here. The only way we can ever find that out though, folks, for sure, 
is if we can get down to this tunnel and see what it looks like. So that's why watching the Dumas trucks crossing the causeway and start setting up is so exciting. I mean, they're not apparently not permitted to go with the shaft that far down, but it seems to be there's plans to do so through some other way, through extending the shaft or digging something out. I mean, we got to see, we got to hope, fingers crossed. The show ends at the money pit, at the garden shaft specifically, uh, with this sort of gathering, this sort of impromptu ceremony to commemorate the work uh, on the garden shaft restarting. Rick, ever the sentimental guy, and we love that about him, gets Dan Henske involved in the ceremony as well he should. Folks, no one alive has been through more on Oak Island than Dan Henske, and none of it really all that good, (laughs) right? So it's very nice to see Dan sort of... um, Treated as the elder statesman here, which is what he is. So when the guys open the garden shaft, what we see is that the shaft has filled to the top with water, probably natural groundwater. We're hoping that it is, um, you know, perhaps from the flood system. Interestingly enough, I don't think anybody mentioned whether it was salt water or fresh. I don't know why you wouldn't. Anyway, to me, this was a really great scene anyway, because... For those of us who are in the into the history of the dig, for those of us who've spent a lot of time looking into the history of the dig, I just imagined how many of those searchers we've read about left the island one night after digging a shaft, so excited about what could be next, only to find when they came back the next morning that all that work digging out that shaft was basically destroyed. <laughs> Because it then looked like what the garden shaft looked like right here. It was like getting a a view through the eyes of all of those searchers before who were the next morning just broken in their search by this very same thing. It's been the biggest reason why so so many searchers have given up on Oak Island or have been bankrupt on Oak Island, just like this. And like all of those who came before them to Oak Island, the the Laginas will now have to pump all of this water out and hope they can keep everything dry so they can get a glimpse of what's down there. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer uh, to do the one-time thing, you could give me a uh, drop me a uh, little donation at Dave McBride Music on Venmo. That is at Dave McBride Music on Venmo. Also, if you want to help out the show, uh, uh, but you want to do it in another way, then you can absolutely do a great service to us by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everyone who's done that already. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the kind words. I know there are other places that you get your shows besides Apple Podcasts. Um, I don't know how you do it on those because I only use Apple Podcasts. So, you know, certainly uh, maybe we can ask on the Facebook page and somebody can help us out. You can also follow the show on Facebook. As I mentioned, we're at Digging Oak Island. If you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, the best place to do that is via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. You can also do it through Facebook Messenger. But just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, or even if you leave a comment of some kind on the posts for these shows, 
I may just talk about him here on the podcast. So if you don't want your messages read aloud, please make a note of that for me. Well, folks, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.